Thank you, Delphine. Please keep that open uh, so that you can see uh, where we're going to this morning. And also there is a, a, a handout if you want to see where we are or take notes. Let me pray um, just again before we look at this passage together. Father, we call out to you this morning and we ask that you would please help us. We acknowledge that your way is holy and what God is like your, you, none. Father, please would you please speak to us and show yourself to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Recap quiz. If you're your first time today with us, you're let off the hook. But regulars, I'll be disappointed if we don't get 100%. Two questions, only two. What is the first thing that we should do as Christians when we face hardships? Brilliant. Thank you. Few. One from one so far. Cry out. The, the, the instinct we've been learning from these psalms, our, our instinct should be, and our first action should be, when in times of trouble, is to cry out to God. Remember, clap. Uh, the, the, the C, cry out. L, lament. Pour out uh, the, the distress you're going through. A, ask. Ask God for help. P, praise and or declare your trust in those things. That's the pattern we've seen of the psalms of lament. First instinct, pray. Cry out to God. Second question. What should we do in those hard times that give us confidence for now and hope for the future? Good, fantastic. Woo, we've nailed it. We've nailed it. You've, you've been listening. We should remember the past. You've seen that again and again. That the psalmist recounting God's work in the past, his faithfulness in the past, gives confidence for now and hope for the future. Excellent. We've seen in all three Psalms. What do we do when that doesn't work? What do we do when that doesn't work? That wasn't actually a question, but thank you. We wait. But that's the question that we're going to be answering this morning. Should have said the quiz was over, shouldn't I? Uh, what do we do when that doesn't work? What do we do when we cry out to God, earnestly plead with him, and our souls find no relief? What do we do when we remember back to God's faithfulness in the past and yet our hearts won't be comforted? That is really the topic of our psalm this morning. And my first point up on the screen or on the handout there is when doing the right thing doesn't work. That was the case for Asaph. Asaph, who wrote this psalm, he was, uh, we learn from elsewhere in the Bible, a musician, at some stage was in charge of the music in the temple. And in the, he laments in this psalm, and like most of the psalms of lament, we don't know what his distress was. Maybe his wife had had a miscarriage. Maybe there were ongoing marital problems. Maybe it was illness. His business was struggling. But we don't know what his problem was, but we do know he did the right thing. Have a look at verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. Let me pause there. He has and continues to cry out to God. Not just this one-off time, again and again. We, we see that it, day and night. 
He is seeking the Lord with outstretched hands. But, verse 2 finishes, my soul refuses to be comforted. All this praying brings him no relief. Prayer doesn't seem to have done him any good. Well, how about remembering the past? Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, that is reflect on those things, my spirit faints. So we've seen again and again, remembering the past gives confidence for now. But for him here, that remembering just causes moaning and his spirit faints within him. And he goes on in more detail, verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. He can't sleep. Insomnia. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. He's so overwhelmed, he can't even get the words out. And again, in verse 5 and 6, we see him doing the right thing. If you just glance down there, you'll see him consider, remember, meditate. He's doing the right things, but all that diligent searching leads him to some questions. And they are big ones, and they may seem shocking at first. Have a look down at verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? We'll look at those questions in more detail in the next points. But just for now, see that remembering the past here not only does it not work, so to speak, it actually makes things worse. When he remembers the past, it leads him to these questions, these shocking questions. It feels to Asaph as though God has turned his back forever. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we have to be clear we have to know that the things that we're seeing here are not some formula. They're not a surefire way to a quick fix. So it's not as though, right, whack out a few prayers of lament, cry out to him, lay out the distress, say, Lord, I trust you, and then it's all good. Now here we see Asaph has been crying out to God, and he's been doing it for some time, day and night, and his heart isn't comforted. His distress doesn't end. It's not as though, okay, you just spent, right, 15 minutes. I spent 15 minutes thinking about God's faithfulness in the past, his dealings with his people, and how loving that's been. And then it'll all be okay. No. For Asaph here up to now, that has just led to more questions. And that can happen. When we think about God and his dealings, his faithful dealings with his people in the past, well, actually, sometimes that can lead to even greater distress. You know, the, the difference between the two leads to confusion. How, how could God have been done those things to those people at that time, and yet this is to me now? Or even meditating on God's faithfulness to you in the past can make that current feelings worse. You know, remembering those times of sweet and joyful fellowship with him, remembering serving him and enjoying that so much, remember seeing his blessings in the past. And again, the contrast. 
between a happy past and an agonizing present just, just heightens the sadness. What do we do when doing the right thing? And they are the right thing, don't get me wrong. What do we do when doing the right thing doesn't work? Well, keep doing the same things. It's not revolutionary, is it? Keep doing the same things. This is, and also, this is not some trick to, to trick our minds, to psychologically kid ourselves that everything is okay. This is not proof of Einstein's witticism, you know, doing the same thing again and again, expecting a different result is a sign of insanity or whatever he said. This psalm is teaching us that there is no genuine quick fixes to real heartache. Progress is often, should we say usually, slow. And we need a solid anchor for our souls an anchor for our souls as we navigate these times. And that anchor is God himself and his great saving work. So what do we do when doing the right thing doesn't work? Well, next point here. Keep crying out honestly to God. Keep crying out I said before that verse one, uh, verses 1 to 3, that the actions we see there are things that he's done in the past and he's still doing today. And in fact, this psalm itself is testament to the fact that though he has prayed and cried out in the past and nothing seems to have changed, yet he continues to do some, to, to, to do so. This psalm is, a, is his um, recounting this, this latest prayer. He continues to cry out to him. And, and that crying out, it's not a turn of phrase. Did you see in verse 1? I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Such is his, his heartache and his desperation. This isn't just in his mind anymore. No, his housemates can, see, can hear through the walls his cries to the Lord. He's crying out. And he's stretching out his hand. His, his whole body is involved in this pleading to the Lord. He keeps turning to God. And he does so honestly. This has been one of the features that we've seen of these Psalms of Lament. And it's something that a number of people have commented on to me as we've gone through is the honesty of these Psalms. I think verse 7 to 9 are probably the most hauntingly, brutally honest of all that we've seen in this little series. There's questions that this has led to. And a number of those words in, in these verses are, are linked to God's covenant. Remember God's, God's promise, his commitment to his people. And yet it seems to Asaph like God's turned his back on those promises, that commitment to his people. See it again, verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love, his hesed, has his steadfast love ceased? Are his promises at a time and at end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? This is lament at its most raw. But you see, pain and suffering create difficult emotions that, that are not based on truth, but yet feel true nonetheless. 
You know, I think as Asaph was writing these questions, he, he knew that the answer was no. He knew the answer was no, but that's what it felt like. Yet he cried out to God and said, this is what it feels like. Have you turned your back on me forever? I think we're perhaps too often afraid to lament. God's people are too afraid to lament. You know what? But the alternatives are, well, to, to give, give way to silent despair. To end up spiraling and spiraling and getting worse. Just to turn inward and introspective and becoming bitter and selfish. Or to lose all hope altogether. Or we attempt to make that, that stoic suppression. I'm all fine. It's all okay. I will be fine. But that facade can't be kept up. Prayerful lament is better than silence. Silence is a soul killer. Don't, don't give God the silent treatments in those times. Cry out to him honestly. I think one of the fears that we have, the hesitations, is being very on guard and being aware of, of not wanting to grumble or moan before God. We see, in, again, a number of times in the Bible, actually, how those things are condemned in the strongest way. Let me just suggest two, two differences between grumbling, moaning, and lament. Firstly, in lament, you are talking to God, not about God. You are talking to God, not about God. The fact that you are talking to him suggests there is an element of trust. Secondly, lament always has an intended destination. The aim and intention of lament is not to wallow in the distress. Prayers of lament should have that progression, hence the clap. The the progression through from that pain to asking him to change, to that praise and or commitment to trust him. So we shouldn't skip the complaints, but equally we shouldn't get stuck there. There is that progression. Now, sometimes that is going to be, Lord, help me to trust you. And that's it. Sometimes it's going to be more concerted, as it is here in this psalm. Cry out, keep crying out to him honestly. But see the progression. And that's when we see our final points. Think about God's great rescue. As Yemi drew our attention to the the great words in verse 10 at the beginning. Verse 10 really uh, is the turning point. Let me read it. Then he said, sorry, then I said, I will appeal to to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Again here, the psalmist sets himself to remember God's dealings in the past. The years of God's right hand, God's mighty saving power. Again, verse 11 and 12, we see him remembering twice. Ponder, meditate. He commits, he's going to recall to mind and think about God's great, mighty, powerful saving acts of the past. The interesting question, I think, is what's the difference between the remembering he did before that made things worse 
and the remembering he's doing now that he's committing to. Interesting question. That's one I'm going to leave you with to ponder. Because I'm not sure there's actually enough in the psalm to say definitively why. Because we're not told too much about his first remembering. But here, this second remembering is the psalmist committing to anchor his hurting heart in the great redeeming act of God in the life of Israel. So that was a bit wordy. Let me put it simply. He's going to anchor his soul in the exodus, in the account of God rescuing his people from Egypt, because that was the greatest display of God's saving love that, that, that Israel knew. That was his, the anchor for his soul, because that, above everything else, revealed God's character and his uh, saving power. The, the language of verse 10 to 15 is, is littered with pointers to the Exodus. Uh, we've seen already that, that right hand. Uh, remember the deeds of old, the wonders, all these descriptions are used time and again of God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, again, verse 14, the God of wonders, who, who made his might known to the peoples. All this reflecting the, the Exodus. We know, if you're not familiar with the story, in the Old Testament, God's people were in slavery in Egypt with a wicked pharaoh, afraid of them and suppressing them and uh, enslaving them. And yet God sent, it did his mighty wonders, his deeds, sending the ten plagues on Egypt. The final one, the, the, the Passover, where the, every single firstborn in the land of Egypt died unless... A lamb was killed and the blood was painted over the doorframe and the angel of death would pass over. And then Pharaoh says, go, and then God's people go, and there they are on the edge of the Red Sea, but Pharaoh changes his mind and comes with his armies and the people, they look back towards this huge army on one side and this wall of water on the other, and they are terrified. Yet God, through his servant Moses, parts the Red Sea and the people get out and the waves come crashing down on Egypt and their army. That is what he sets his mind to. Verses 16 to 20 remember the, remembers the details of it. It puts it in, in lovely poetic language. But again, as I said, as the people were there with this terrifying army on one side and this wall of water on the other, they were afraid, but not God. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Verse 17, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightning lighted up the worlds. The earth trembled and shook. God's utter mastery and power over creation. And then carrying on verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, the exodus, these events that, that, that he reminds himself of there, the greatest experience, God's uh, greatest experience of God's gracious, loving, mighty, powerful saving work in the Old Testament. And Asaph anchors his soul to it. 
that is what I'm going to think about because that's what shows me who God is. That's what God, that shows me God's amazing saving power. And so, will the Lord spurn forever and, and never again be favourable? No. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? No. Are his promises at an end for all time? No. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No. And I know that to be true because of the Exodus. The greatest experience of God's gracious, loving, mighty, powerful, saving work. And in the face of trouble, we Christians anchor our souls in the greatest experience of God's loving, mighty, powerful, saving work that the world has ever seen, the sending of Jesus. Well, in fact, the Exodus was pointing to the greater redemption that he was going to do through Jesus. As Jesus there died on a cross, bearing the full weight of his people's sin, him paying that penalty in order to set his people free. And that is where Christians take our heartaches and pain. It is there that we see his character. It is there that we see his unfailing, loving commitment to his people. We see it objectively there. Can I have the, the next slide up, please? Um, We've turned to Romans 8 a couple of times um, in, in our series, but uh, doing it again here just for a fantastic description of that wonderful, committed uh, love that is shown here. Let me just read two verses. I mean, you can almost pick um, any part of the chapter. But verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we know that God is for us because he's given his son for us. If he's given his son for us, well, we know he's for us. And verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see that past confidence, that objective truth of the father giving his son absolutely guarantees that he's going to give us everything else we need. And it is definitive proof that God is for us. And if he is for us, well, then who can be against us? That is the anchor for our souls in times of great trouble. That is what's going to keep our souls secure. Our circumstances or feelings, whether past good ones or present difficult ones, are not a reliable gauge of God's love and commitment. It's notable, actually, how through the first half of the psalm, it's lifted with I, 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 and gradually through the psalm, they fade out to you, you, your. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the reliable gauge for how God is committed to his people. And join with the psalmist, remember, ponder, meditate. That is where to turn. Of course, we don't need to wait until the distress and trouble comes on. If you're thinking about what to do in your quiet times in the coming week or beyond, why not go for Romans 8? Spend a week or two in Romans 8, reading a few verses in a day. There you see God's people are in time of suffering and see what wonderful gospel truth is pointed to. Read through the, the gospel or the end of a gospel. Pick the passion and see that committed, steadfast love 
in action. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. That is the anchor for our souls. And just as we end, can I, I, just to, I think we can learn two, two things from God's experience um, of the Exodus that again can help us as it helped Asaph. Have a look down at the last couple of verses. See verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. God brought his people out of Egypt. Yet for Israel, his footprints were unseen. And see him there doing it. And that is the way of God's dealing with his people. Actually, at the time, often we cannot see God's footprints in the, in the times of struggle and the difficulty. Looking back, we see them. But at the time, we often don't. And secondly, verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So yes, God himself, his footprints weren't seen, but he did this great uh, saving work through Moses and Aaron. He gave them a shepherd to guide them. And we have a greater shepherd in the Lord Jesus who guides his people through all difficulties, safe to his side. Think about God's great rescue. Again, brothers and sisters, hardships, distress in life, they are unavoidable. They will come. And often, usually, relief won't come as quickly as we'd like. Keep crying out to God. Keep turning to him honestly. Keep thinking about God's great rescue in Jesus. You see, see, the language of lament helps us join those two things, that the distress that we're experiencing and the love in Jesus. Lament is able to redirect weeping people from what feels true to what is actually true. Relief may take some time, but praying in his expression of trust and the salvation that is ours in Jesus, the anchor for our souls as we navigate those waters. And so we can affirm with Asaph, has his steadfast love forever ceased? No. No. Let's pray. Our Father God, we know that you are the Holy One. There is none like you. We know that you never forget to be gracious to your people. Your steadfast love is certain. Your promises endure. And we know those things and are sure of those things because we've seen Jesus. We've seen what you've done in him. Please would we anchor ourselves to him and call out to you when those hard times come that you would lead us and guide us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.